Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunstreet. Dunstreet's a modern campaign agency dedicated to using data-driven grassroots organising to build winning campaigns and make the world a better place. So whether you're in business, an issue-based campaign, or an organisation driving change in your local community, Dunstreet helps develop strategies to overcome challenges by connecting people that share the same values and organising them to achieve common goals from the ground up. To find out more how Dunstreet can partner with you or your organisation or someone that you may know that needs some organising, um, hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. On this week's episode of Socially Democratic, we are joined by Dr Andrea Carson from the Latrobe University, my old Alma mater. But before we speak to Andrea about the most recent federal campaign and the messaging and the digital campaign and the relationship between campaigns and the media, um, and we also may touch on a bit about uh, the most recent AFP raids on uh, some of the journalists um, at the ABC and News Corp, um, don't forget that you can subscribe to Socially Democratic on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. And remember, if you're an Apple Podcast user or that's how you listen to these podcasts, don't forget to give us a rating uh, and leave us a review. And for all the up-to-date, up-to-date, up-to-dates, for all the up-to-date podcasts uh, coming from Socially Democratic, you can just follow us at uh, all the different Dunn Street um, platforms on social media. So we're on uh, Facebook, Twitter uh, Instagram and LinkedIn. But coming up next is my interview with Dr. Andrea Carson from the Latrobe University. joined by Dr. Andrea Carson. Uh, she is an Associate Professor at the Department of Communications and Media at my alma mater, La Trobe University, and she was previously a lecturer at, uh, sorry, in political science at the University of Melbourne and served as an honorary fellow with the university's Centre for Advanced Journalism. Uh, Andrea actually specialises in uh, politics and the media with special interests in in investigative journalism uh, and the media's role in democracy and political communication. And she's done extensive research on journalism, Australian politics, party representation, voter behaviour, election campaigns and digital media. And she's also uh, worked in the media as well, uh, previously as a print journalist for The Age, online, radio, ABC, Triple R and uh, TV with uh, the 7.30 report. Um, and so we are weeks now out of a federal election, so I thought it would be a great time to get uh, Andrea onto the podcast to talk a little bit about the campaign now that the dust has settled. Um, and she's been very uh, kind to give us her time, and it's great to welcome onto the podcast today without after a very long introduction. Andrea Carson, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I love talking politics, and I'm keen to hear what you've got to say too about the federal election. Well, let's uh, let's get into it. Um, I, I, I should preface preface our conversation today by uh, restating essentially what the Premier Dan Andrews said maybe the day after the election on John Fain, um, where he sort of basically said that immediate, immediately following an election loss, um, the analysis always seems to be that the winning campaign did everything right, the losing campaign did everything wrong, and anyone that had any had gone out publicly and made um, 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 presumptions, try and repackage those presumptions into a way that looks like they predicted it all along. 
Um, so I'm gonna, I've been trying to avoid that from day one, um, and it's not easy to do. Uh, but I, um, I really wanted to get you on because um, obviously I first met you through your time when you were lecturing and set up a really, really great course at the University of Melbourne, um, which was focusing on campaigns and elections and politics. Um, a course that I wish I had when I was in, uh, at university as opposed to just drinking at the uni bar at La Trobe. <laughs> Um, and we met through that course, and I just think it's fascinating and really important that, ac- uh, that, that academia are looking at political campaigns from an academic level. So I wanted to get you on to talk about it from that perspective and your observations and the wealth of experience you've had over a very long period of time in that. Um, so with that introduction... A L- lot of uh, pressure on me there, Stephen, but I should be honest with listeners and say that I was one of those people who thought it was going to be a Labor victory when I was watching the campaign unfold. And so when that initial data started coming through on election night, uh, all the numbers were heading in a different direction to what I thought was going to be the direction. And very early on, there was a clear indication that it wasn't going to be as we thought it was, but part of that also was because of the polling data which was showing consistently over a number of years that there was a Labor lead at least 51, 49. Um, And so working off that and watching the campaign, perhaps being a little bit too close to it, uh, meant that we weren't uh, open to the idea that it was possibly going to be a coalition victory. On uh, previous episodes of the podcast, um, we had uh, Claire Burns, who's the um, who's replaced me as the Assistant Secretary of um, Victorian Labor, and we sort of spoke a little bit about the data. Um, so I don't want to sort of go back over that, but just your thoughts on data. Data's come in for a lot of criticism in this campaign, did after the Trump election, did after the Brexit election. I feel like a lot of people are making uh, assumptions about the accuracy of data from uh, an uninformed standpoint about how data works. Yeah, Data is not accurate. Uh, sorry, it is not always 100% accurate. Um, there is um, varying degrees of its accuracy. Also, you don't know uh, how the data has been collected when you've finally got the actual the output, the results in the newspapers. Um, what, are your, what were your takes on, the, on, on data and how much should that come in for criticism in this campaign? It's copped a lot of criticism and not all of it's been fair, I don't think. Um, One thing that characterised this election campaign was fragmentation. There wasn't a universal swing going on around the country and often the data that we're relying on is national data. And if you look just at Victoria, then the polls were actually quite accurate for Victoria, but they weren't for other parts of the country. And I think the answer there is we need more data points and we need much better quality um, state-by-state polling but it's expensive and that's why we don't have it. And so the answer really is more data rather than less. It really is expensive. And it's one of the challenges that political parties certainly face. Um, you know, a, a, a face-to-face, sorry, not a face-to-face, a person-to-person um, poll of voters, in, so quantitative polling, um, can, you know, to do a, a seat-level poll would cost between, you know, fifteen dollars to $20,000 a hit. Um, whereas those robo-polls, which kind of came into fashion in 2013 campaign, it's probably one of the actual, at the time anyway, it was something from the Labor perspective we looked at and went, um, okay, this was a campaign that was a hot mess um, and not many good things came out of it, but there were some silver linings and one of them was um, in the data side is that we worked out to do polling that was far more um, cheap, sorry, far far more 
um, cheaper than the traditional polling, but was just what we thought at the time was just as accurate. Um, but over a period of time, perhaps we've noticed that the robo-polls are not now picking up certain demographics, particularly young people aren't answering the phone, therefore the accuracy then or the, the margin of error blows out a bit. Yeah, I think there'll be a lot of analysis from the polling companies themselves about where um, they might have house effects, uh, where their particular methodology um, creates some bias and also um, some hurting effects where the companies tend to converge and produce very similar results. But um, I imagine they're doing that work now to uh, to get a more accurate picture next time. Let's talk about um, messaging in the campaign um, and the overarching campaign narratives of the two major parties and the execution of those narratives through the different channels. But let's start with the, the messaging in itself. And let's start with the winners first and then talk about the losers a second. Um, I'm not sure I picked up what the positive message of the Liberal campaign was throughout the campaign. I certainly got a clear understanding of what their negative frame was on Labor. Um, what were your thoughts on the, the Liberal net message to come out of the campaign? I thought it was a classic uh, fear campaign. It had really one message that dominated, and I think that was the strength of the campaign. Whether we like negative messaging or not, it's very effective. And I think if you ask people to repeat back what the message was coming out of the Liberal campaign, they'd have a clear sense of it, and that was that it's the bill you can't afford or that every time you go to spend, Bill Shorten's hands in your pocket. And I think that really resonated. And the word tax was used again and again and again and again by the Liberals. And we also see that translating through some of the media reporting, even on the day before the election was called, front pages were all about tax, ScoMo um, branded himself as ScoMo, changed his way he presented himself four times on his Facebook page in order to get that ScoMo just right, and that got picked up as well. So he was able to do a very presidential-style campaign with the ScoMo. He was front and centre of it. Um, lots of clips of him um, slapping hands with kids and high fives and all that sort of thing, presenting himself as a man of the people and with a fear campaign, which is a very powerful emotion. Uh, I want to pick up on that ScoMo point in a moment, but just to go back, and I, I've really tried to analyse my own inner thoughts. It's hard to go back and think about what you, how you thought things were tracking uh, during the campaign because, as you said, you know, you kind of assumed or th believed that Labor were probably going to win. Um, I certainly did that. I've said I said that on a podcast the week before. Um, but looking before the election result was known and looking at the materials and the core messages of the of the Liberal campaign, can you think about what your analysis of it was then before knowing the result? Did you think that that would be enough to win? Did you think that that would be... Because um, what I thought was I, I looked at that and there was certainly the negative frame and I went, I think that's the best they can do. I think if I was the Liberal Party campaign director... I would go down that path. So I was in my mind, I was kind of giving props to them, saying, well, actually, no, good on you, because that's probably... This is your best chance anyway. I don't think you're going to win, but that's probably how I would pursue it. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I thought something very similar too, that ScoMo's out in front because he had a whole heap of ministers fall over and quit before the campaign began, and uh, he had a divided team. You're not going to put Tony Abbott out campaigning with you. So it had to be presidential, and it had to be negative because... Uh, that was the strongest message they had. 
there's a concept called issue ownership, which I know you know a lot about, which is political parties have certain strengths in certain policy areas. For the Liberals, the issue ownership for them is always the economy usually and defence. Uh, and for Labor, it's health and education. And so they were going for their issue that they knew they had the strongest point on, and that was the economy. Uh, they couldn't really say much about what they were going to do for the economy, so it became a fear campaign. And fear campaigns do work. There's been lots of research on that to show there's something biological about us that we prioritise information that we find frightening or concerning over information that we find um, more soothing or pleasurable. Let's turn our attention to the Labor side of things. Um, the positive frame was based around a fair go for all Australians and fairness. Um, and the negative uh, from memory was... Which, and I must admit, I when we when I did a podcast with uh, Sabina Husick um, before the election and we sort of decided to do this big sort of election breakdown before it happened, I actually went... I had to go looking for our negative um, um, advertising material for online I couldn't I, I, it was quite hard to find and I wasn't getting it through my social media feed um, that's not a criticism I think that was just because of where I live um, but I couldn't find it but the ones I did find were the negative frame was around the instability in the government in terms of who the leader has been over this whole period of time constantly chopping and changing um, and then there was an, an ad that came up later in the campaign which sort of then tried to twist into climate change as well um, what were your thoughts on both the positive and the negative frames that Labor pitched to the electorate? So Labor, I think, did a lot more positive framing. And now that the election's over and I step back and think about those messages, there was just way too many of them. Um, the narrative that you said about the fair go, they started off strongly with that and then it got lost with all the different policy initiatives and the time that it takes to explain those different policy initiatives... And so I think it's okay for someone like you and I who are watching it every single day, we pick up that, okay, today they're talking about cancer, next day they're talking about childcare workers. But if you're um, providing for your family, going to work, worried about bills, paying cursory attention to the media, you, you're going to miss half those messages and no major message was coming through. Uh, was it about childcare? Was it about cancer? It could have been any of those. In, and what it did was create an opportunity for each of those uh, policy areas to be criticised, which very much the Murdoch press did do. Mm. As for the negative campaign, the only one I can think of was a TV ad that came through with Malcolm Turnbull and, and Scott Morrison, um, where Scott Morrison says, I've got your back, or uh, I'm supporting you, Malcolm. And But I thought they could have gone a lot harder on that. I mean, this was a government that was looking at getting a third term, which is pretty rare, and it had three prime ministers in the last two terms. I would have thought there was a lot more ammunition and material that could have been met out of that instability and inability to deliver on a lot of their promises because of that instability. Um, to Getting back to the positive component of the campaign frame for Labor, I'm assuming what they were trying to do that was to just pitch to the voter that the, the value frame is that there is a fair go for all. Our positive message is that there is a fair go for all Australians. Where there are, I'm assuming that their research kind of came back at them, their, their qualitative research was saying, like, you know, we've, you know, life's tough, we're finding a bit of a squeeze, you know, jobs and, um, and all the cost of living and pressures and that kind of stuff. And so the labour frame was kind of, well, we're just trying to give you all a fair go. But... 
but by all those policy announcements they're trying to do, here are examples of us trying to provide a fair go for you. And that the link, the value link between all of them is here are here's Labor trying to deliver in giving a fair go for you in childcare, in health, in you know um, university education, in whatever, in jobs and access to better jobs. Do you think that? Do you think that they did a good job of that or do you think that just, that just got completely chopped up and just never was delivered properly? Yeah, I think it got completely chopped up and those links weren't made strongly enough. They were probably being made by ministers all the time but the public wasn't picking up on it. And I also think with those policy areas that you've identified, whether it be health or whether it be childcare, they created winners and losers within them. So why pick cancer, for example, and not another chronic illness for someone to not get out-of-pocket expenses for. Great for, well, not people who have got cancer, obviously, have got a lot of hardship, but so is someone who's got MS or someone who's got Parkinson's. And so there were winners and losers within that policy. And the same with supplementing childcare workers' policies. That also highlighted other underpaid workers who also are often um, feminised workforces why just choose childcare? So there was cherry-picking going on with the policy and what should have been a really positive message, I think, created uncertainty and concern about, well, how come I'm missing out? Mm. The, uh, the, 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 the remarks you made before about SCOMA are really, really interesting. I had to really think about um, his, his candidacy at the top of the ticket for, for the Liberal Party. Um, and I likened it to, um, you know, I felt that like they were trying to rebrand him as this sort of daggy dad in the hats he wears and the, the sort of the, 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 the you know, the, the, you know, his daggy shoes and the ill-fitting casual clothes. Um, he's always, he seemed to be always smiling. He always looked like he was enjoying himself he, on, the, he did. on the campaign. Yeah. Um, and I kind of felt like... He was a guy that I knew back home in the country when I grew up. Like, he, he used to work for Telstra, but he took the redundancy package, and now he's really happy working in Bunnings. You know, he's that kind of guy. He goes down to the pub. Most of the blokes at the bar think he's a little bit of a wanker, but honestly, he's, his heart's in the right place, so we don't mind him. And I felt like that was the kind of... Whether they were going after that or not, that was the image that ScoMo had. Um, and that was soft enough um, for them to say, well, we can accept him as a... A prime minister will vote for him. Plus, you're driving home this negative thing about bill and and tax and you know the hip pocket, which really determines voters where they're going to cast their ballot. Um, did you get a feeling that that was the case in terms of how they're trying to brand Scomo? Yeah, I did. I think uh, very similarly that they'd been doing this rebranding for a while. You remember the bus went around Queensland in January and that's when ScoMo was drinking beer and wearing the baseball caps and he got a bit of flack for it at the time because the messaging was pretty crude that I'm this, you know, um, next door type of guy. But it was quite a contrast from when he was the immigration minister and the kind of guy who has a trophy on his wall that um, proudly uh, reminds him that he was the one who stopped the boats, he was able, his team was able to rebrand him away from that more um, uh, uh, serious character uh, who played a tough role into this uh, accessible person. And I think the use of his family also helped structure that image his wife was often there in the background and in contrast to the labor campaign which also used the family his wife didn't look all glammed up she looked like um a typical wife a partner supportive partner and having his kids around and I think you're right he did look like he enjoyed the campaign um 
and he did a lot of events where he allowed the public to be around him and it looked like he was one of the people. And a, a lot of the media coverage had him drinking beer, which is something, you know, Australians can relate to. So I think they did a very um, good job of making him look relatable. And, and relatable also then speaks to a, a, a core component of campaigns, which is you're trying to communicate... Uh, what shared values the the party or the leader has with the, the, the with the electorate, um, and sometimes you don't need to communicate what those shared values are through words. You can do that through imagery, and I thought that the Morrison campaign did that very very well through a lot of the examples that you've just mentioned there, people looked at him and sort of said, OK, I think he's kind of like us. Because ultimately I think that the best campaigns are the ones that can, can, can construct a, a narrative in which the leader or the party is a protagonist with the people and the antagonist is your opponent. Yeah, and they did that really well. And the play on word with Bill Shorten's name, the bill you can't afford, it's so memorable and it sticks in people's minds and I think... They did just as you said where they created an antagonist and a protagonist uh, and it made it a clear picture, easy to understand messaging, which is also really important rather than the big target campaign that the Labor Party did with lots of different messages coming at it and takes a bit of time for you to really uh, understand what the different policy positions are. Here it was really clear and it was easily um, transmitted to the public. And then you turn to um, the way that Bill... Bill's come in for a bit of stick um, over the course of the campaign. I, I, and I look... This is one of the things that I will sort of hasten... Uh, caution in, in terms of the stick that he's getting because I don't think that... For whatever... Um, for however he conducted himself as, as the, the top of the ticket in this campaign, um, I, there is no evidence right now to suggest that he was a drag on the vote... Um, he may not have done a great job, if that's if that's people's view, but I don't think that anyone has any evidence right now to suggest that that's the reason, one of the reasons why Labor lost. So just putting that aside for one moment and actually just ex- exploring Bill's um, um, uh, campaign uh, in in uh, in in in, in, uh, uh, in isolation, um, how did you think that Bill communicated with the electorate in terms of his core values um, and what he was trying to say? One of the things I liked about the Labor campaign was that it was a team campaign and Bill often surrounded himself with his ministers and his female ministers and I think that sent a message that this was a team and it reinforced the idea that Bill had been there for six years and there had been stability. I think that was a a real benefit of that campaign but the flip side to that is that Bill had been there for six years. People had made judgments about who he was and what they were going to get. And in some ways, I think there's an analogy here between um, Bill and Hillary Clinton, where people knew Hillary Clinton and they'd made up their minds on her. And I think people have seen Bill around and they made up their minds about him. Um, And even though it was a team effort, I think there was still an element. Typically, Australians vote on two-party preferred. They vote for parties. But I think this might be a moment in time where it did become more personality-based. And I'd like to see some research around whether people were voting based on personality this time, especially with the branding of ScoMo making it all about him. And I think by doing that, you also and he also personalised it very much about it being all about Bill as much as Labor tried to make it about the team. Don't, I, th- I always... Yeah, it's an interesting point you make about that because you're right. The majority of voters vote on colour, red or, uh, or blue. Um, from time to time, you'll have a candidate that 
can be uh, as strong as the party brand or or stronger. Um, and I think that ebbs and flows. I don't think that... Um, well, we see that with the independents, don't we? The yeah. Kathy McGowans. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Daniel Andrews' brand right now in Victoria is incredibly strong. Yeah, but also keep in mind when he first contested in 2014, wasn't it? Um, his personal uh, preferred premier was 33%. And this is often a figure that I use because when we had all those polls coming out saying that um, Bill Shorten wasn't the preferred prime minister, I'm pretty dismissive of those because that's not usually how people vote. Mm. And and Daniel Andrews was the case in point. He won that election despite Dennis Napthine being at um, 57% preferred Premier at the time. So, but I do think that the particular way these campaigns unfold, it was very focused on personality in ways that perhaps we haven't seen before. Yeah. Let's turn our attention to uh, the ways in which both uh, parties sought to communicate this narrative that we've just sort of unpicked a bit. Um, And I want to turn our attention, first of all, to digital, um, because this is um, one of the areas that has come in for a bit of criticism in the media, um, people talking about the Liberal campaign and trashing Labor. Um, and there's, a been, there's always been a view that this has been a stronger area of um, campaign ground for Labor than the Tories. What were your... And you and I actually want to say this, I just want to point out to listeners as well, uh, you and I did, were part of a 7.30 report. I, I know I still call it the 7.30 report. I know it's called 7.30. Everyone calls it the 7.30 the report. Goddamn, why change the name? I know. It it's, it's makes more sense as a report. Yeah. Than just 7.30. I know. I sound like my mother when I do that 7.30 report. But, you know, uh, 7.30 report uh, in the 2016 campaign where um, they, were com- they were doing a, a campaign analysis pre-election uh, on um, the ground gamp- campaign. So they came and met with me and some of our volunteers and organisers in Deakin. Uh, and then there was a the digital component as well. And you were sort of going through uh, comparing, the, comparing Malcolm Turnbull and Bill Shorten um, in terms of their digital content and whatnot. Let's just get your sort of top-line takes on the two campaigns going into this campaign. So I do think that traditionally Labor's been much stronger on digital campaigning um, and ScoMo started very much on the back foot. And if you look at how many likes or followers he had on Twitter and Facebook, he was a long way behind Bill and I was sort of tracking this well before the campaign began. Uh, he had about 120 Twitter followers compared to Shorten on 300,000 and similar figures across all the different social media platforms. But what happened, and I was watching the campaign unfold, the digital campaign in real time during the campaign, and it was getting about 20... The whole um, political atmosphere was getting about 20,000 likes every day. or uh, well, Not just likes, but interactions, which and- is... Define interactions for the viewers at home. So a interaction is when it's, uh, uh, someone interacts with a message by either liking it, putting a comment on it, or a follow. Um, and it doesn't have to be a positive like. It can be, you know, a thumbs down or whatever. But the, the, the accumulation of those different things are called interactions. 20,000 is not very many a day really, when you think about other things that track really well on social media. So that's the first thing I'd say, is I don't think people were actually really engaging with this campaign. And the first two weeks, Bill Shorten was leading every single day. There's a tally board that I I was able to look at 
and you could see all the political leaders and he was getting about 54 or 55% share of all the interactions. And Scott Morrison was quite a long way down. And it was also reflected with the political parties. Then once early voting opened about April 29th, um, Scott Morrison had really increased his followers on those platforms, still was behind Bill, so had a disadvantage in that he's not getting the same reach. But what his campaign started doing then was pumping out a lot more video content. And anyone who works in social media knows, um, whether they're marketeers or um, brand specialists, video does very well on social media, particularly if it's pithy and short, 15 seconds, 30 seconds, and it can be used on mobile phones. And that campaign started doing a lot more video content. And then we see Scott Morrison and the Liberal Party overtake Labor in terms of the number of interactions that it was getting. Um, and some of mainstream media picked up on this as well and did some commentary along the way about it. I spoke to someone during the week, had a coffee with someone who worked on the Labor CHQ campaign, um, and they uh, they certainly prefaced it by saying, "Well, you know, it wasn't the greatest of campaigns that we that we had run in the dig- in the digital space." Um, but they did um, want to stress the point th- that, um, particularly in rebuttal to. Um, some of the criticism that came in from media on what you've just said there in terms of pick-up rate um, and, and engagement between the two uh, parties. They said if you look at the large engagement metrics, likes, shares, c- comments, you'll see that a large part of um, was made up of comments and particularly on the Liberal Party um, posts, um, and those comments were largely negative people directing stuff at um, ScoMo. And if you take away those comments out of the equation, then Labor was almost always uh, ahead. Now, one thing he did say, though, was is that Labor and he also then um, then they also assumed that that the Liberal Party also didn't get to see the back end metrics that they historically have always got, particularly with Facebook. Um, but weeks out from the election campaign beginning, the election campaign proper, um, that was taken away from them. However, the media still got access to that, so in some ways they were kind of flying blind. Now. Um, he, he uh, they have um, you know their their uh, their assumption is that um, that a lot of these um, comments were negative, so therefore they were doing quite well. But do you have a different thought on that? My that might be true, but what I did notice was that they weren't liberals weren't using much video, and then suddenly they started using it. And once they started using it, they overtook Labor and Bill Shorten in the number of interactions they were getting, and. Uh, they were putting out a lot more video too. So sometimes I was a little surprised when I was watching it in real time that for the day Labor might have only put two posts out and people who work in social media will say, you know, usually five's considered the minimum of what you do if you're trying to get a brand known or you're trying to stabilise a message. And so I was a little surprised with how few interactions or how few new posts were coming out. Um, And the video certainly, I think, gave an edge to the Liberal campaign. And by the end, you can see that the Liberals, uh, when you graph this up over a three-month period, had clearly overtaken Labor. Um, One of the other things that they um, mentioned was uh, the amount of... I hate using the term fake news because it's the term come up by Donald Trump, but um, disinformation that was online uh, and... Uh, the Labor Party was aware of this and it was it was getting a lot of traction online um, and they, you know, they found that that was very difficult to combat against. Did you pick up a lot of that in this particular campaign? 
Yeah, so the false news that you're talking about or the disinformation was about the death tax, uh, the idea that Labor was going to bring in an, an inheritance tax, and that did get traction online. And the, I've traced a bit of that back. The beginning of that was a um, episode on Sunrise back in eight months ago where they talked about out of the Labor Party conference the possibility there could be an inheritance tax and they had a panel discussion uh, about whether this was a good thing or not. And those who were sending this message out linked it to that sunrise, so a real news event, and then said, if you vote Labor, you're voting for a death tax, and it took off. There's about 20 or 30 users that were the um, prominent sharers of this information and were putting it out there. Most of them were on the far right of politics and they were political figures. And what I found is there's about 17,000 interactions with the death tax. That's people actually interacting with it. But when you count up all their own followers, it goes well over the million mark um, that of people who potentially could have seen it may not have interacted with it, but but potentially could have seen it. Some of that also is Labor people trying to combat that messaging. So saying, uh, if you've seen this, it's not true, we've got no plans for it. But in some ways that just um, reinforces a message that is disinformation, that's not correct. Um, And the other point uh, they made was um, that um, a lot of the people that... um, a lot of the research shows that um, 55 and overs are susceptible to fake news more than any other group. Um, and that that demographic, that sort of 55 plus, um, are one of the highest users of Facebook. And from my own research... Um, and probably concerned about a death tax too, because yeah, yeah, they're getting closer yeah, to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and from my own um, research group of one, my mother, um, <laughs> w- watching her on... Ever since we bought her a bloody iPad, just watching her just scroll through Facebook... Um, whilst watching Sky News, um, which that in itself worries me, um, is uh, and just seeing her look at things and ask me questions about um, political news coming up on her feed. And some of the content is from, you know, The Guardian or the ABC or all the ma- mainstream media, but other stuff is just crap that I don't even know how it gets on her feed. Like, she's not liked anything from these organisations, but it's just there. Um, and that... Uh, you know that's that's concerning, and I've read a couple of articles in um, in the US where um, one uh, Democrat was talking about uh, their grandparents who had said, you know, um, I grew up as a young man, uh, I love my grandparents, they're wonderful, wonderful people, and in the in the in the in the eighties, in the nineties, and the early two thousands, they were m- middle America. Um, centrist, you know, maybe swing voters. Um, sometimes I'd vote for the Democrats, sometimes I'd vote for a Republican, um, but just generally very well-grounded kind of individuals. But for the last um, 10 years, they've just been on their on, on Facebook and watching Fox News and they've basically turned into these right you know, ultra-right-wing people that I don't know anymore and I don't like them anymore, you know? Um, and they've got some really shit views on race and gender mm-hmm. and, and equality and a whole bunch of other things. Um, and I, you know, I think about that. That's we're not immune from that here in Australia. Um, and what kind of impact that's going to have on, on the voting population going forward? Yeah, I think that cumulative effect of messaging, and there's been studies on this to show if you're getting the same messages again and again and again, which is what you're describing there with people being in a bubble or a, filtering out other messages, 
it's going to have some sort of impact on how they think further down the track potentially. Um, but back to the death tax, to be fair to your mum or to anyone else, it was really artfully done. The fact that it was linked to an actual news story means that when you're scrolling through and you see Sunrise and the Channel 7 logo coming up, why would you think that was fake news? Mm. And it was coming from, you know, Stand Up for Australia and all these groups that um, have their own logos and things, and it gives it an air of credibility if you're following those sorts of sites. But one of the difficulties for the big technology companies like Facebook is that a lot of this stuff was being shared from people's private pages. So, Stephen, if you said if you sent me something that was blatantly false, you're not expecting Facebook to come in and take it out of your feed. We don't want them being the arbiters of what information you're allowed to share or not share. And this is one of the dilemmas that Facebook faces with this sort of disinformation that people still have a right to share stuff, whether it's true or not. Um, It's not desirable, but it's very hard to give that power to a multinational for-profit company to be the arbiter to decide whether you can share that with me or not. But we have to, I guess we have to work out what Facebook is. Is it a new service in which, you know, we have other multinational for-profit organisations that are basically, that are new services that they determine what they put on their publications and we've seen quite clearly what, you know, Murdoch does across the world in that respect. Um, or is it a, it is a, is it a, is it half a new service but also half a, uh, a platform in which we're involved in that process and that's kind of the comp, complexity that I think you're talking about there because um, it started off as just being a way in which we could all talk to each other and then all of a sudden it became a news feed really that our feeds just stopped having us in there but just all the things that we like and people would share it or like it and now it's starting to kind of move back into what it originally was but if you sort of read between the lines I think what they're really kind of moving into is um, is stories, so video stories is one area where they want to put more emphasis on. Um, and it's also their closed group communications like WhatsApp as well. Yeah, that's right. Um, and that's where Facebook seems to be heading. It is, And that's a challenge for digital campaigners. It's ever-evolving. This conversation that we're having right now in 2019 is fundamentally different to what it was in 2016 and 2013 because Facebook and social media keeps on changing. And so it's harder for... Um, for digital campaigners to keep up to date. I was looking, I was speaking at a lecture at Melbourne University yesterday and there was a bunch of books on the reading guide about modern campaigns and they were written in 2010. Mm. And I picked up a couple of them and I was like, this is out of date. Like, this is literally useless now in certain aspects. Okay, some things don't change the way we communicate through the mainstream media and whatnot. But, you know, grassroots organising is a now new thing in Australia where we are relying on thousands and thousands of people to go and talk directly to people and there's this whole digital thing and then there's data as well and another area we haven't spoken about campaigns are constantly changing that's so true and you've summed it up really well um one of the things i've been tracking is from about 2013 how australian politicians have been doing digital campaigning and you've done a bit of work in the states and especially with the grassroots staff to see how they campaign there and I think it's probably still true to say Australia's at least one election cycle behind the US but what we're now seeing is in 2013 for example there was only a handful of politicians who were probably on Facebook and using it frequently now every backbencher everyone's got a Facebook account not all of them use it well some of them do um some of the independents in particular use Facebook really well where they use it give us an example uh, Jackie Lambie, 
users at, at Pauline Hansen. Uh, whether you like them or not, they're very good at using it not as a broadcast mechanism but as a conversation and they understand how important it is to interact with their voters. Now, they can get away with that because they're not trying to appeal to a mass um, broad part of the Australian um, electorate, which the major parties are. So major parties become risk adverse in their messaging because they're trying not to offend. They want to keep it as broad as possible. But when you're um, a One Nation candidate, you can... you you're appealing to a very niche group of people and you want to interact with them as much as possible and really build that base. And if you offend people, it's uh, going to have less consequence for you than if you're a major party. So we're seeing now um, that there'd be no doubt from all politicians and political candidates the value of using social media um, and they're doing it, but not all of them are doing it very well. Let's talk about the media. In this campaign, this is an organisation that you have spent a lot of time both working in and then studying from an academic perspective and how they interrelate with political campaigns. Um, before we do, I want to uh, just mention the an article that I sort of flicked to you and for people at home listening, um, an article during uh, the last week from Catherine Murphy in The Guardian. And she wrote what I thought was quite an honest and considered piece about... Um, the role that journalists play in a political campaign and sort of basically saying that, you know, um, we don't know uh, with perfect certainty what is happening and why in a campaign. Um, so we have to put our hands up as well and say that, you know, we can get it wrong. Um, I just want to get your thoughts on the how journalists have... Um, how they reported this campaign and how that has changed over the last two or three or four or five cycles um, that you've been studying and watching election campaigns? So journalists, to use an American term, are part of the beltway. They're, they're interacting with politicians and candidates uh, all the time. They're hearing the messaging, and that's both a strength and a weakness. The weakness is that they get caught up in the day-to-day, -day, that it's very hard to stand back and get some perspective about how the average person might be consuming this information. The other thing is that um, the phenomenon of on the bus, which there's a bit of a backlash against now, where journalists go around with one side of politics on the bus and they go to a lot of very staged media events, they can, in doing that, and there was a fantastic documentary on this from the 2000s, and some of the journalists on the bus then were becoming quite cynical about it, and I think that cynicism's very much increased. But they also said that um, the, ph the photographers were saying... Um, Is this the Margot Kinson documentary you're talking about? Uh, no, it was an SBS one. It's called On the Bus and it's right. got Lenore Taylor in it right. and a lot of faces yeah, you'd recognise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really good. I use it in my teaching. But uh, one of the things that comes here is the photographers say, oh, you kind of feel like you get to know the politicians, you're following them around, you're kind of barracking for them by the end, even if they're not your side of politics. And I think that's an interesting insight that even with levels of objectivity, you get caught up in the messaging of the side that you're following around. And journalists might think, therefore, that they know more about what's going on than they actually do because uh, they are seeing the minutiae and moment-by-moment moment events, but they're not seeing it from the consumer's point of view, from the voter's point of view, uh, and also seeing what the other side's doing at the same time. They can only be in one place at one time. So I think that does colour the overall impression of a campaign. And I think it happens with commentators as well. 
Um, in the uh, in the article that um, Catherine wrote, she said, I just want to sort of pull a quote out of here. She says, this is not me saying we uh, political reporters as a cadre lack expertise. The tenacious souls among us hang in there for decades studying our ecosystem with diligence and care. We learn about politicians we report on, observe their habits and rituals, building up a level of insight that informs our reporting and commentary. The crucial word in that paragraph there is um, the politicians because they do look at politics through the lens of a politician and not through not through other aspects of a political campaign because you and I know a political campaign is not just about the leaders or the politicians that we're seeking to elect. I know that democracy is based on that premise, but in order to get them elected, um, there is a... a uh, if, if, if an election campaign is an iceberg... Um, the politicians are above the water. There is so much more going exactly. on. Exactly. There's a whole heap of machinery that's going on behind the scenes. But to be fair to the journalists, they don't get access to that either. So they they can't report on it if they don't know about it or they're not getting an understanding of some of those insights that are known deep inside the political teams. Yeah, and I think that um, and that was my frustration as a former party official is when I read political commentary or articles from journalists, I get angry because I'm like, you haven't got a freaking clue what you're talking about, but then I have to remind myself, but I'm not going to tell you what we're doing anyway. So I can't really help you in that sense. So they're in a lose-lose situation. Um, I don't know what the answer to that is. Well, the other problem is they talk to each other. And this is a bit like the polling problem as well. Journalists will read each other's stories and that can build a perception about what's happening rather than the reality. And as you know, as someone who's done campaigning, perception can become reality. Perception is reality sometimes, but it can also um, create parallel universes. And I think that's what was going on with this perception that Labor was doing better than it was uh, during the campaign. And then the surprise came when the data started coming in on election night. Um, I want to actually um, turn to one particular article, which I sent to you beforehand, which was from Latika Burke, um, who wrote a, a post-election piece on essentially how the Liberal campaign uh, ran their campaign and won the election. Um, and I want to go back to the original remarks of our Premier, Dan Andrews, which is, um, you know, the winning campaign, they did everything right, and the losing campaign, they did everything wrong. Um, I have a lot of problems with this article. Um, I uh, want to get your thoughts on it and we'll just sort of go through some of the sections of it and we can have a bit of a back and forth on that because I don't think we're actually in um, simpatico on this one. No, we're not. I liked it because I found insights there, whereas I think you thought... Well, you already know a lot of that stuff, whereas for me that was the first time I was able to read how the Liberal Party amassed their team and who was given what responsibilities and how they went about it. And I found those insights quite useful. Well, that's the very first part of the... She's broken it up into um, the team, the location where the campaign was based out of, their internal comm structures, um, the digital stuff um, and some other points as well. But the team, it sort of sets off talking... Sets the scene of Andrew Hurst, who when he first got the job as the um, National Campaign Director or whatever the title is for the Liberal Party, um, setting about filling his team. He hired Simon Berger... Um, who was um, working for um, Michaelia Cash. Uh, he went from Washington. He called in uh, Isaac Levito, um, who appointed alongside Berger as his, Berger as his co-deputy directors. Uh, the field work was carried out by an, an Australian research and campaign business um, um, with new recruits, Michael Turner and Michael Brooks from London, and they were all kind of brought in to give strategic advice. So you found that interesting. I, I found that uh, as a story of uh, a Liberal Party... Um, senior 
campaigner hiring all his bloke mates. <laughs> like, yeah. where, where are the women amongst this group? It, well, that's true, isn't it? But uh, they seemingly were effective. Now, of course, I should say there is a view in political science that campaigns actually make no difference whatsoever. Uh, people who are working You're on campaigns... knife right through my heart right there. <laughs> exactly. People working on campaigns do not have that view, nor do journalists, because they're always looking to pinpoint moments in a campaign where it all fell apart. You know, some might say Bill Shorten's messaging on superannuation in the first two weeks is where it all started falling apart, where he got questioned and wasn't able to um, give the right answer or the correct answer. So uh, people who care about campaigns think that they really matter. But it's very hard to be able to scientifically measure that in a meaningful way unless you were able to isolate all factors and have one side campaign and one side not campaign. Mm. And that's never going to happen in a real-life situation. No, that's true. And, in fact, that was a point actually I wanted to mention about the digital stuff, and I forgot that when we talk about digital reach and engagement and all that kind of stuff, there still really isn't any... um, uh, clear research that does point to digital and I've said this to you before um, in some of the lectures I've come and spoke at Melbourne with you is that we don't have enough research right now that tells us the persuasive effects of digital campaigning Um, and there is limited research on the persuasive effects of say TV advertising what we do know is that um, it's really expensive yes Um, and and then there is research that certainly the Labor Party's conducted um, which I um, won't give away to um, our competitors, about the persuasiveness of conversations on the phones and doors with targeted individual voters. So, you know, a campaign only has limited resources in terms of time, money and people, and you've got to work out where you spend all of that, um, and you want to spend it in areas where you get good return on investment. Um, and, yeah, you're right. Ultimately, we, the bigger picture, we don't really have a great sense of what kind of impact all the different things that we're doing is changing votes. Um, but I guess we have... where where data helps us and where we're trying to get better at is trying to identify what is the most effective things that we can do in a campaign. And not all voters are the same. And there's been well over a 1,000 studies in this area about what are media effects of campaigns. And what it finds... There are some things we do know, and that is less engaged voters, those that aren't really following, are more susceptible to messaging than those that have um, a very strong sense of partisanship, which probably isn't all that surprising. We know that visual imagery is more effective than um, reading print. So television has been a very powerful way to get messages through. We know negative campaigning tends to work more than positive. A study I did with some University of Sydney colleagues looked at the Medi-Scare campaign of 2016 and you used the word persuasion. What we found is that the Medi-Scare campaign did have an impact. It lifted the Labor vote by about 3%. What we find is it's not so much a persuasion effect but a reinforcement effect. So Labor's vote at the time was tanking um, and we saw that in real time because we're using the vote compass data where people were saying who they were likely to vote for and then once that Medi-Scare campaign kicked in and it got picked up by mainstream media so it had an amplification effect but that very first ad Bob Hawke did on June the 11th we start seeing people nominating as their most important issue healthcare which had been down at level three or four. So it has to be salient as well, a message before it's going to have an impact on someone and then 
it also wears off if it's not reinforced. But what we found with the Medi-Scare campaign is that the mainstream media then started putting it on the front page, putting it in the TV news bulletins. So it did have an amplification effect and it does seem to have undecided or weakly partisan Labor voters thought, yeah, we better get on board and vote for Labor. And that's something that um, we can often forget as um, campaigners is that uh, when trying to work out your pathway to victory uh, and identify those targeted voters that you want to go after, um, there was a period there where we just kind of looked at the undecided voters because we assumed that they were the people that we needed to speak to. Um, but then the view started to shift to not just undecided but highly persuadable voters. Now, you think those highly persuadable voters would be people who are going to maybe vote for another party, but it also includes people in your own backyard. They are also susceptible to your opponent's messages as well. So you need to target Labor voters. And I know that when we were doing a lot of our targeting for persuadable voters, um, a lot of our volunteers were coming back and going, oh, they're all... They're all Labor. I got Labor people today. I thought we were supposed to be going after either, you know, soft libs or or people who are undecided. Um, And that's a nuance that um, can be forgotten about sometimes. And maybe in this case, um, you know, um, we or Labor didn't, you know, lock up the people that historically have probably voted Labor um, but have thrown their vote around once or twice before. I'm doing a lot of nodding here because I couldn't agree more. Uh, 2013 was a really live example of that. The 2013 election and something we've also done research on was looking at the way asylum seekers was used as a campaign message by the coalition. It had a lot of prominence about turning back votes. And what we found, again, analysing the Labor vote, was it split the Labor vote. Um, Those that were weakly aligned to Labor really took on board that fear campaign and peeled off to the coalition. Those that were weakly Labor that didn't like the messaging peeled off and went to the Greens. Mm. And so Labor's vote got hollowed out on that issue and it was a prominent issue. It's got to be salient if it's going to change votes. And in that case it was and it had an impact on Labor's vote. And this time I think there's room to do some research on the franking credits for the same reason. Some preliminary data we have from Facebook shows that when it comes to franking credits, if people could work out what it was, um, the Labor vote didn't land on uh, the side that Labor would hope that it would land on and that was support for that policy, it was very dispersed. And of all the policies that we've looked at with Vote Compass, that is the only one where the Labor supporters, self-identifying Labor people, have some negative views about that policy. Now, whether that was enough to change votes, we don't know yet, but it's an area to look at. And it demonstrates uh, there, is, um, there, is a, there is a softness on that issue amongst uh, the Labor base, which would be a concern from someone who used to have my job. Yeah, I I would have thought so. Yeah. Let's keep going and ripping into Letika Burke's article, can we? Um, But then she (laughs) goes on and talks about... uh, The next point she talks about in terms of the Liberal campaign was... um, And she says, now the question was, where should the team be based? The decision to send them to Queensland, well out of the Canberra bubble, at the suggestion of the uh, Nationals Federal Director, Ben Highmarsh, another bloke, um, was uh, as deliberate as it was strategic. And then there's a pull quote from, uh, from the, the Liberal Party director saying, there's a benefit being in a capital city where there's a bunch of marginal seats. You're picking up the newspapers, you're listening to the same radio, you're watching the same TV at night. Um, you're closer to the key seats. So um, if someone needs to get uh, to a key seat to deal with an issue, it's much easier. Yeah, now what's your criticism there? I That's insightful. That is, I just think it's crap. It's absolute crap. First what? of all, everyone in CHQ would never have left that building 
they would have left that building at 11 o'clock at night and gone back to their hotel room and gone to sleep and then woke up next morning and done. They never go out there. Second of all, um, no, they're not reading the newspapers and they're not watching the news. It might be on in the background up in the, sort of around the room, but they're, just, they're not consuming the media. It's just absolute garbage. You could put... You could put a campaign headquarters on the moon as long as your campaign has actually got a good strategy, a good core message, and all of your uh, outputs are well organised. That's all you need to do. You don't actually physically need to be there. Arguably, arguably, based on this rationale, they should have put their campaign office in northern Tasmania because that's where they picked up more seats than anywhere else in the country. But they didn't, and they still won those seats. So yeah. this is absolute, absolute baloney. Well, they picked up two seats in Tassie. And they picked up oh, sorry, two yes. seats in Queensland. Yeah, which, uh, but I mean, most of the seats they needed to go after were all in far northern Queensland, which t- would have took seven hours to drive to get to anyway. So it wouldn't have really matter where the campaign was. I just think that's crap. I just, I always hate that because the reason why I hate it is because there's always an argument within the Labor Party about whether it should be in Sydney or Melbourne. So why did they put it in Queensland? Do you think the the yeah? I think they believe that. I actually do think that. Oh, you think they believe that? Yeah, absolutely. I know. I just think it's garbage. Yeah, well, you make a strong case, especially given that they weren't up in far north Queensland, which is where the seats were won. Yeah, absolutely. And Brisbane's quite different from uh, the different issues that would um, be resonating with people than what they would in the top of Queensland. In fact, I think they should give a bit more credit to Bob Brown and the convoy of anti-Adani Miners that went to Queensland, which I think um, probably had a pretty strong effect on voters up there who didn't like being told what they think the issue should be in their backyard. Oh, that was brutal. That was absolutely brutal. Uh, yeah. I, I, so we agree on this one. Yeah, we absolutely <laughs> agree on this one. Absolutely yeah. agree on this one. Um, then the next part is it's uh, the next subheading of this article is um, WhatsApp discipline. And she says that upwards of 15 WhatsApp groups were formed to coordinate campaign messages and tactics. The tactics and media group would begin pinging with messages at 5.30 in the morning, and which continues through to 11.30 at night, sort of implying that they were working very hard and stuff. Now, on behalf of my comrades that were working in the, the Labor CHQ, everyone does long hours. This is nothing new that people should glean from this. Is oh, geez, they were getting up really early and they were messaging each other. I think it would be more embarrassing for the Liberal Party that they're using such a basic messaging service as WhatsApp, there are far more sophisticated messaging services like, say, uh, Slack that most major corporations and, well, uh, very effective organisations are using as opposed to WhatsApp. It's quite crude, really. So I took from that as, like, I wouldn't have probably mentioned that. That's embarrassing. And also shitting on other people who would have just worked as hard, the difference is that... Yeah, I, I thought that too. I mean, for someone like me who used to work in local radio, you see how these messaging... Uh, unfold. You're there at five in the morning, you get phone calls from campaign directors at that hour trying to push the message of the day, putting forward their talent or whoever, whichever minister or candidate they want on air. And so you're part of that play from those. There was nothing new in that for me either, other than that they've used you know, what used to be the telephone, turned it into a WhatsApp. Yeah, exactly. And then the last point you sort of made was um, talking about um, their sort of engagement strategy. Um, uh, she said, by the end of the election, the Liberal volunteers and membership base um, had... Rec- oh, sorry, wait a minute. She spoke about their, the digital campaign and the daggy memes that the Liberals were putting out and that this was some brand-new silver bullet that helped the Liberal Party win this election campaign. Now, obviously, I'm really keen to get your thoughts on this because, you know, this is an area of expertise on you. I just thought these memes were shit <laughs> and that I don't think this was having... 
if any impact, it might have been warming the cockles of the hearts of all of these Tory voters in Baldwin and up and down the country, but ultimately wasn't actually shifting any votes. And that was about it. There's, I agree with you, but one exception. And that was the day the election was called. I thought it was a smart move as part of the campaign strategy to turn the Twitter feed black. Oh, no, the budget, sorry, back in black. I thought that was an action that reinforced the message and a really simple one to do. And again, was a talking point, got picked up, got a lot of amplification. As for the Game of Thrones <laughs> memes, um, they seem, you know, there's no logic in that. I don't think it's older voters or the coalition base that are watching Game of Thrones. Yeah. So it, it seems um, a bit clunky. And this is where I go back to Australia being at least one election cycle behind what the states is doing. The uh, then her sort of hypothesis from this is that by the end of the election, because of all these memes and and this sort of stuff, the Liberal uh, volunteer and membership base had recovered, uh, and the importance of this cannot be underestimated. Unlike left wing parties, which have the unions and activist groups like Get Up at their disposal, the coalition relies mostly on volunteers with day jobs. Uh, Now, this one burns my piss the most because of obviously my background was you know trying to build a network of volunteers across um, Victoria and then across the country. And I will point out, I did not do this on my own. I did this with hundreds of other organisers up and down uh, the country. Um, but we, we all spent six and a half years um, trying to build a volunteer grassroots movement. It implies, one, that the Labor Party uh, over-reliant on GetUp and the union movement, which is an absolute fa- fallacy. The GetUp did not help the Labor Party in any way, shape or form. I want to put that out there. Yeah, it certainly didn't for this election. Yeah, absolutely. There is no coordination between the Labor Party and GetUp in any way, shape or form, certainly not at a state level when I've worked on sta- state campaigns, and I don't believe that's the case at a national level. Um, and, uh, and, the, and the union movement as well, like there's a, there is a level of coordination that we don't step on each other's toes, but ultimately they're doing their thing for their members and we're doing our thing for the election campaign. Um, but it also just suggests that, 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 one, that the Labor Party do not have volunteers, they do, and that they, we out-organise the Liberal Party on the ground 20 to 1 easily, and that the Liberal Party do have this volunteer base, which is just crap, they don't. And I just want to get that out there and let people know that because that is just absolute garbage. So that sort of ended the article. And I just sort of thought to myself when I finished reading it, I was like, she's just been fed these lines by a winning campaign and just bought it hook, line and sinker and written about it. And it gets back to the original point we were talking about in terms of journalists. This is the worst, for me, this is the worst example of political journalism on a campaign. And it is outrageous. And people buy this crap. Yeah, well, I'm really interested in your views about whether Liberals can get volunteers up and I think maybe there was a couple of isolated examples oh no it wasn't even liberals it was the independent like Zali Stegall um, and I know Kath McGowan um, through Helen Haynes they had 1200 volunteers as you know they're not easy things to do liberal party doesn't have a tradition of getting volunteers a lot of its base are small business owners who are in their jobs unable to be out there volunteering so there should have been some sort of pushback on that. You know, what are the numbers? How did you get the volunteers all of a sudden? Uh, what numbers had they grown from? I would have liked to have seen that in the article and I can see why that would quite infuriate you that it's just accepted without uh, any challenge. And I, look, I, and I get it. Like, everyone wants to write that piece. And I've been a part of those pieces as well when we've won election campaigns. But at least the, the journalists that we were speaking to, there was some sort of forensic analysis about what I was telling them. Like, I got push back on some things and, you know, you had to be kind of upfront about it. But this one here just seems to be, look, um, I'm overseas in London, uh, you know, can you help me write this article? I'll fill in the gaps and you just tell me what you did and that's how you won. Um, I, I, as I said at the start of the the, the, um, the podcast, um, 
yeah, the Liberal Party, you know, they won the election and they did a great job. And we've talked about some of the things I think that they did quite well. Um, but the reasons as to why that happened will become more apparent when more data is released and we can analyse that. And obviously the parties do their own internal reviews. But at, at this point in time, anyone who's read that article, um, they would be misled into thinking these are the reasons why the Liberal Party were successful on May 18. Yeah, I, I think so. I think people voted for the status quo and there wasn't enough reason to move from the status quo and there was not uh, anything frightening that was being presented by the Liberal Party for why you should move to the opposition. Typically it's said that um, governments don't... Um, oppositions don't win elections, governments lose them and in this case the government didn't lose the election. Um very quickly, because we're sort of running out of time, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on something that's really happening at the moment right now in the media, and it is about the media, and that is, and after I've just finished trashing a journalist, I'm now going to come and defend the media. Oh. The, the AFP raids, what is your take on uh, on this? This is uh, incredible what's happened in the last So I'm really days. disturbed by this. On the day after the election campaign, uh, I did a two-hour broadcast with John Fain and Annika Smethurst, who is one of the journalists involved, who's had her house raided on a story, I think, out of 2017. Um, and I heard Damon Johnson on the radio speaking this morning about uh, standing up for his journalist, and I was really really pleased to hear him do this, that journalism um, is a really important part of a democracy to be able to have freedom of speech. And he was seeing journalists being, their activities being criminalised in a way that there's no clear um, logic to me about how it's in the public interest for the AFP to be going after journalists in this way and threatening jail terms. Uh, and I think as a public, we really need to speak out against this sort of behaviour. Journalism's under pressure anyway, because the business model is uh, under a lot of um, financial duress. Uh, newsrooms have got smaller. We saw the amalgamation or the takeover of Nine with Fairfax. The journalists that are doing their job don't need this level of antagonism on top of the other challenges that they have. So I'm pretty disturbed by it and all power to John Lyons as well for live tweeting when the AFP came into the ABC to let the public know exactly what's going on here. Yeah, that was actually... It's actually, if you haven't looked at that, um, it's worthwhile going back on Twitter and actually looking at John Lyons' um, Twitter feed. It's actually quite fascinating. Um, and, and good on him, as, as you said, good on him for doing for doing that. Um, the big question of, that's being asked right now is how much did the Home Affairs Minister, um, Peter Dutton, know about these raids and the timing of these raids immediately after uh, an election? Well, this is where the government's got form. Um, we, You'll remember the story with Michaela Cash when there was raids on the Australian Workers' Union. She denied having any knowledge of that and yet it was one of her team members, her media advisors, who tipped off the media. The media was there as the raids were unfolding. So if there's some scepticism about government being arm-length from the AFP, it's because there's a lack of credibility in this space with government. And Damon Johnson, the editor of the Herald Sun, was making this point um, today that he just doesn't trust necessarily the words that are coming from Peter Dutton when he says that they have no prior knowledge of this. And we need, as a public, more transparency about the timing of this, why it's occurring and what government knows. And why isn't government um, standing up for having... a a media that's free of any interference. Yeah. 
Um, I don't want to end on a bad note, so I want to end on a high note. You've got a book coming out. I know, oh. it's, I know it's an academic book, uh, and you're, you're reticent to prop it up, but I think you should because you don't, you've done a lot of good work in this space. Tell us a bit about the book that you've got coming out in a couple of Oh, months thanks, time. Stephen. So this book, I guess, has been many years in the making. It's about investigative journalism and its relationship to democracy. And one, it's called Investigative Journalism, Democracy in the Digital Age. And one of the things I'm trying to do with this book is to debunk the myth that investigative journalism's dead, that, um, yes, media are in a lot of trouble, no denying that. The economic model for it is um, floundering. But journalism is different from um, media companies and what we've seen is a scaling up and I talk about this in the book that uh, once upon a time journalists were fiercely competitive and they would never think about working together and collaborating and now in Australia we see these collaborations as an adaptation to the economic environment, uh, particularly Fairfax journalists teaming up with the ABC in order to do some really powerful investigative work. But they're also scaling up on an international level. So the Panama Papers is one example, the Paradise Papers by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. And here you see 400 journalists coming together, working on a data set for over a year, and then simultaneously releasing the stories, 92 countries, all in one hit, And this is really important stuff because it means that um, global power, and in this case economic inequality with tax evasion, is able to be critiqued by journalists in a way that they've never been able to do it before. And they're doing that through the use of data journalism and through collaboration. And so that's what the book's about, that investigative journalism is in... Lots of parts of the media are in a bad state, but investigative journalism is in a pretty healthy state. How can uh, people buy that book? (laughs) So I'm hoping the publisher will uh, make it available in a soft copy or a paperback so that it's more affordable. But uh, it will be part of the academic market, which means that they put pretty hefty prices on it. But please ask your library for it because libraries um, are the main buyers of these sort of books. Fantastic. Uh, Dr. Andrea Carson, thank you very much for your time today coming on the podcast. I've really enjoyed this conversation um, about the whole campaign and getting your insights um, into it. Um, and best of luck with uh, your um, your gig up at uh, La Trobe University. Um, my old alma mater spent many uh, good three years there, not doing a great deal of study, but having a lot of fun on campus anyway. Um, and uh, I wish you all the best of luck with that. Thanks, Stephen. And I look forward to getting you down to La Trobe soon. Indeed. Thank you.